0: Welcome to uh, our last installment of Spiritual Health, and um, I had multiple texts and calls today, just about a little bit of traveling, so it's nice to see all of you that have come, and those that are watching online, uh, we'll, we'll do our best. We, we didn't really know when we began today um, if we were going to be in person, we didn't know that. So... I I followed a little bit different pattern and just gave you almost the entirety of my script without any fill in the blanks. However, there are margins where you can write your grocery list, or if I say something of interest, you can put it down on your paper. That would be a novel thing. And so we're going to just get into this. Now, this lesson, as we were last week, is not for the faint of heart. Uh, the faint of heart can start on the first lesson and then perhaps the second, but as I spoke last week, lesson three and four uh, gets into depth of spiritual living and health and so um, i i have to I have to teach tonight as if no one is in the room, and I know no personal stories. Uh, the advantage of Of the the evangelist. Is that he can come to a church. And preach. And not know anyone's background. And everyone thinks. It's of God. Because he doesn't know your story. The disadvantage of the pastor. Is that he knows. A little bit about the background. Um, um, But it still could be of the Lord. So uh, we hope it's of the Lord. Um. However, in this particular uh, lesson tonight, as we wrap this this up, and, and of course, I, I don't know that it'll ever be completed, um, but in this particular lesson, we're, we're going to really call out a few things that, that need to be addressed, um, probably not just for our church, but for many congregations across the United States. And um, it, in particular, this is for the modern American church. Uh, it's not always um, relevant to other cultures, and you'll know why. I'm reading from the book of Deuteronomy. I've just taken a small excerpt. There's much more to read of this, but it's a wonderful question, and it, actually the answer is in the question. What nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgment so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Of course. The answer of Israel, it's the God of Israel. Only take heed to thyself. So just because you have the statutes and and, and the judgments and the law, still pay attention, verse 9. Keep thy soul diligently. So how about guard yourself? Lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen. If If you had to boil or wrap up the entire Old Testament... That Old Testament can come to one word, and the word is remember. So God says, don't forget the things which thine eyes have seen. Now, why would the Lord say that? Because even the great miracles are forgotten by the people of God. The greatest miracles, the greatest services, the greatest things that have ever taken place. People forget them. So don't forget them. Now, pre-adventure, we would not uh, forget. The Lord would not have had to give this command. But he does so for cause. The cause is that we have a terrible time remembering the goodness of the Lord. Unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. So, there's not a There's not a limitation here to just children and grandchildren, but it is an indication that they should always be taught. Verse 10, finally. Um, Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. This is a this is an insight here of great proportion. Let me let's look at the last line of verse ten. There is a reason why God said, "Remember," and then teach. And the reason why they had to remember and then teach is because they saw it, and their ch- but their children did not. It is the it is the clear, not necessarily the first, but the clear. Line between one generation and the next. Okay. Everybody got that? Um, The depth of of spirituality is determined by the level of obedience, submission, pursuit of biblical understanding. While many might determine their own level of depth, this is not good. The litmus test is always known by kingdom mindedness. Or where where is your kingdom mind? I just listed a couple of scriptures here just to tell you that. Just to show you. Uh of what the spirit has so god is a spirit jesus said behold my hands and feet that it is i myself handle me see for a spirit our ghost hath not flesh and blood as ye see me have so within the embodiment of jesus christ there is this spirit and there is this humanity so to know him means to manage our flesh our humanity while we walk or live after the Spirit, this, of course, is a heart issue, and there's a few questions, and I won't exhaust them. But can we manage our human desires, or or what is our human ambition, what is our life goal, and and so we need to ho- hopefully we need we need a life goal to follow the Lord and to be spiritual. Now, in this pursuit of spiritual health. Um, uh, we we have a we have a lot of challenges today probably as many challenges today as any previous generation in the United States for the last since the modern age um, and part of that is because we have an unfiltered uh, unlimited amount of information that feeds our brain it's in our home it's in our lives it's in our car all the cell phones, every media device, communication. And and most of the communication uh, does not lead us to Jesus Christ. So this is the big challenge for uh, for us today. The next challenge is that about 110 years ago, there was an explosion, a resurgence of the Pentecostal apostolic faith. And in the late uh, 1800s, we found... Um, uh, we, we we found a a, a revival. There was a, a I'm sorry, a revival was founded, and then and then it broke out in a, in a more of a major way in California, and it was a little mission store. It was a two two story uh, mission uh, church, and uh, some very poor folks came, and in that and that mission there was a pastor. His name was Brother Seaman. He was a, a black pastor, and. Uh, and brother Seymour was um, uh, was one of the most profound preachers that ever graced a pulpit and he had a He had a crate for a pulpit it wasn 't kind of like this in fact, the crate was uh, it was a it was an old wooden coca cola crate, and he had a little platform um, where one uh, some wood was underneath it, and then the crate and he would come downstairs from uh, from his small place where he lived, and and kneel down and put his head inside the crate, and he would pray until he felt like God spoke to him. Then he'd stand up and he would preach. and And uh, in a in a, a small book called "The Stories They Told," uh, most of the saints' members were young teenagers, and they had various gifts of healing. and And in, in of course, of course, there was not there was no dental hygienist there in those days. I mean, only for the very wealthy people, but still uh, a lot of diseases come through staph infection and mouth infections and and people had rotten teeth. And so they would come to church and they were very, very sick. And one of the girls, she was 13 years old. One of the gifts of healings that she had was that she would actually pray for people and then feel led. And people would open up their mouth and show them the massive infections. And she would as the stories they told, she put her finger in those sockets and, and the rotten teeth would disappear and a, and a new tooth would, would appear. Um, there were there were uh, hospital beds uh, laid on the front area of the sidewalk where people were healed and walked out of that. It was an explosion. That 1903-1906 uh, revival it just just made its way across the United States and people were seeing miracles of of healing, great healing. In Topeka, Kansas, there was another outbreak of, of Holy Ghost revival. It was in nineteen seventeen. And then and then in um, Indianapolis, Indiana, Christ Temple, there was a, was a powerful preacher who wrote who wrote I see a crimson stream of blood. He came out of his office and started to sing it for the first time in his pulpit. He, he sang I see a Crimson Stream of Blood. His name was GT Haywood. He was also a African American, a black pastor. And um, he he was profound. And and his contemporary that led him, helped him, was Andrew Urshan. Andrew Urshan was a Syrian man who, who was profoundly gifted in, in the oneness of God. So our heritage was so strong because they had nothing. We were on the wrong side of the tracks. and And people used to throw rotten fruit and rotten, rotten vegetables at the Pentecostals. They were outcasts. They were poor. They were uneducated. They were need, They were in need of God. And, and it was incredible moments of time. And even in Europe, these things would happen. In fact, when my grandmother was a very, very little, little girl, uh, my great grandmother, uh, Grandma Costa Giovanni, was holding my grandmother's hand, Annie, and, and Grandma was walking by one of those house churches, and um, of course, all of those Italians were very, very Catholic. My grandmother remembers looking up and people were praying out on the front porch of that house. They were packed into that house. And and the, the best we can tell from my Aunt Josephine was that that was a Pentecostal church that my grandmother walked by with her mother, um, holding her mother's hand. This was happening all around the United States. And then if you kind of look through the history, we find that uh, many things were transpiring in the United States. There was a lot of conflict and, and um, there was a lot of changes in the 1940s when men went off to war. Many of our boys did not come home. They died in, in foreign fields. Some of their bodies uh, never made it back home. And And in the 50s, there was a new thing that happened. Something happened. All of the mothers and daughters and, and they, they, many of them had lost their fathers and brothers and husbands and they went to work in the factories to help support. World War II but they never really went back home and so from that in 1960s and 70s we see a liberation movement and in the 70s we've seen not only did abortion uh, uh, come about through Roe versus Wade but also they took the Bible out of schools and prayer out of schools and, and now you got the massive 80s where there's an explosion of creativity and songs and the best music that it was ever created was in the 1980s. I apologize for all of you who think that it started today. And then, and then we have, we have the personal computer and cell phones and, and, and all of that started to make its way into the 90s and 2000s. And, and what we have, what we found is affluence. We found that we were no longer on the wrong side of the tracks. No one was throwing, throwing rotten eggs at us. And in fact, in the 80s, there was another explosion of speaking in other tongues and that, that that went all over the United States, even the Baptists. They called themselves Baptocostal at the time. And they became strong Baptocostals and the, 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 the cogit churches and, and, and some of the Church of Gods. And, and th- this was an amazing thing. Charismatic movements happened. And so you had all of these different tongue talker people all around the United States. It was an explosion. But something has started to happen, and as the generations went by, the first generation saw the miracles. The second generation were living off the miracles of their parents, and they were seeing some of it. The third generation came about, and they they had defected mostly. And then now we're into the fourth generation past that. We're just about to close out the fourth generation. And that fourth generation, they abandoned, had long since abandoned, all the principles of what happened in the early 1900s. In some circles, in a very technical term, this would be called the sectarian cycle. And so from that, uh, we will just delve into your handout. And I'm going to kind of walk through this with you that this is not the first time in history. In fact, probably been, been done multiple different times. Now, I just want you to know that I'm a number two generation. You are being led a pastor by the second generation apostolic. So I only can... Can give you my perspective. From, from my point of view. But I've got a good view. Of the up line. And I've got a pretty good view of. My downline. <laughs> but I have. Built in limitations. Built in. Okay. Israel was doing pretty good. They had Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. And then Joseph was. The great man of recovery. Let's do a little history. You ready? Joseph shares dreams. He's second in charge. Joseph builds up the wealth of Egypt. And when Joseph and his family convened, there was about 70 of them. Most of them went to Goshen. And the reason why they moved to Goshen is because the Egyptians hated shepherds. Now, they liked the meat, but they just didn't like the shepherds. They thought they were dirty people, uneducated, not refined. So most of them went down to Goshen, and they exploded in popularity and in population. Everybody loved them because they had good traditions. But the population growth was disconcerting for the pharaoh. A new pharaoh came to town and did not know. Everybody loves them, until a new kid comes to town. That's a song. I want to sing it right now for you. <laughs> I'll pass. Okay. Um, just thinking of the lyrics of the song. Everybody loves him. Okay. Um, I can hardly get off that song now. <laughs> He didn't know Joseph and so had no idea because one of the things that the Jewish people had that none of the other nations had was an oral history. What the Jews did, incredibly, is that they always repeated the stories of their fathers, grandfathers, and heritage. Many people don't do that, and because of that, they lose touch with where they came from, but not the Jews. The Jews always had that. That's why even through times of great tragedy like the Holocaust, they never lost their traditions, their customs, their ideas, because they always verbally communicated their history. Always. They never got tired of it. In fact, they would say on every festival, three main festivals, three main festivals, so Sukkot, Pentecost, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, uh, 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 Passover, Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, Sukkot's usually September and October. So uh, Passover and Pentecost, they're about 50 days apart. So Pentecost was very hard because people would be coming back to Jerusalem. Um, But they always repeated that over and over. Why are we we living in a tent, Dad? Because this reminds us that there was once a time that Sukkot, it's the festivals of of the the tabernacles or a booth, B-O-O-T-H, a booth. Um, Why are we doing that? Well, because there was a time when we wandered the wilderness. We had to have these makeshift tents. So we're remembering what our ancestors did thousands of years ago. Even in New York City, if you go there during that time, you'll look out and out from their apartments and out from these beautiful townhouses. They'll have these, these little verandas where they're setting up all these tents. People go out there and live for seven days. Incredible. But When you you got past Moses, and then you got to Joshua, after Joshua, then there arose another generation that didn't know the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. Which was incredible, because there was a break in the oral tradition. Now, they're going to recover that, because they're going to have judges, and they're going to have prophets. But the people cry out, because, like most dumb people, we look at other people and say, hey, we want to be like them. They're driving a nice car. They have a government. And so, this is what Israel did. Look at all those other nations. They're driving a nice car and they have a government. So, they didn't get the car or the camel, but they did get the government. And the prophet Samuel warned them, don't do this because if you do it, the king's going to conscript your sons. He's going to take the best of your flocks, your land. He's going to enlist all your sons and daughters, and then he's going to tax you. And the reason why he's going to tax you is because he wants to live good, while you work for him. <laughs> it's called the U.S. government. The federal government. <laughs> yes. And so. They asked and begged for a king. He said we want a king. And the prophet said better not. Better not. But okay. If this is what you want. Now the prophet got angry. The prophet said well. You know I'm offended. Wasn't I good enough for you? And God said to Samuel, don't be, af- don't, don't be afraid, and don't take it personally. It's not against you, it's against me. So, just so you know, human government not a- is, is an offense against God's government. <laughs> I know someone in the government right now is watching me. The FBI just want to wave and say hello. I'm not the militia. Whatever. And so in comes this man who is a phenomenal man that has some great attributes. His name is Saul. And the prophet uh, really takes a liking to him. In fact, Samuel, the prophet, who is a profound prophet, in fact, he wears the ephod as the high priest, he is the prophet, he is the judge. He is the governmental leader. In fact, there's no man in the Bible in the same role ever like Samuel. Samuel is more than just a prophet. There were many prophets, but there were prophets and priests. There were prophets, priests, magistrates, and governors. But Samuel was all that they needed. Samuel was ordained, called by God when he was a child. Samuel was so incredible that he served the Lord and did the work of God and never had the Ark of the Covenant in his possession. He didn't have any convenience like everyone else. He never had the Ark of the Covenant. It was never where he served. Because when he took the reins, I'm sorry, it was never in his possession after Eli died. When he took the reins, that, that Ark of the Covenant was gone. Eli died. Israel was lost in battle. And, and the Ark of the Covenant never came back. Okay. Shiloh was never the same. So here are the kings, and I'm going to give you four kings that that followed this cycle of spiritual life and, of course, death. The first king, of course, is Saul. He began with prophecy. In fact, the Bible says that he prophesied with the young prophets, the school of the prophets. And he came in humility. In fact, even God indicated, when you were small in your own eyes, did not I make you the captain of the host? So when Saul began, he began in humility. Let me just say. Almost always the first generation begins with humility. And the reason why is because they know where they came from. And they're uncertain of their steps. They're not confident in themselves because they know. I don't belong here. There was no king heretofore until Samuel anointed Saul. He also... Created and led the first army of Israel. This was an amazing thing. That they would have what we would consider a general. And he led a united nation. Under the guidance of the prophet Samuel. So in the beginning. He did convene a government. He did have a treasury. He began all the governmental affairs. And he did have Samuel to his, to his uh, disposal. But in your next little articles here. I I put down some, uh, some of the negatives, I suppose, that happened to him. He did not go after the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the Bible says in all of his years, he never went back after the Ark of the Covenant. He could have. They basically knew where it was. I guess they all did. And after a few victories, he got lifted up in his own eyes. Oh, my. He had immediate success. Why would he have immediate success? Because God was with him. But, of course, then he began to disobey the voice of the prophet because that's what kings inherently do. Individualism always rejects the voice of the prophet. That's right. That has happened in America. Individualism has destroyed the voice of the pulpit. He occupied roles for which he was not called. In fact, in one instance, when Samuel didn't come about, he didn't come at the right time, Saul, the king, called for the ephod and wore the ephod and made his own sacrifice. Because once again, he did what he thought was right because he did not want to wait. Kings are also impatient. They don't want to wait on anybody. Let me just tell you, the American church is filled with kings. Now, I'm going to just teach this. I, I expect no rapport, but I'm going to teach it like no one's in the building, and I'll try not to look at you, or I'll wear my glasses, which only work for this, and I, you get foggy like that. So if I'm looking up like this, it means I don't even really want to recognize what you look, what you look like. You look like a blob. Okay. And he became full of anger and resentment and self-preservation because he knew that his disobedience led to the dismissal of his monarch. And so he, he, he became a man that was angry and started to throw spears. It's amazing what it looks like. And if you could see it for what it was. He lodged a spear, his spear, into the wall. And there was holes in the palace wall as he tried to kill David. Amazingly, when he went out to chase David, that same spear, which we think it's the same spear, was stuck in the ground next to him. And David could have easily, in the night, picked up that spear and killed. He could have killed Saul, but he did not. So, King Saul was the first. He had it in his hand. He had the great experience, the greatest asset of any generation is that of humility, uncertainty of self, and total reliance on God. If you want to grow in God, always have the position, I'm not sure, but I do trust in the Lord. I don't know that I can make it, but I do trust in God. I don't know how I got here, but I'm going to rely upon the hand of the Most High God. The moment... You, you, you switch that over, and you're uncertain of God, and you're sure of yourself. That's the moment you're about done. Amen. And that happens every day. People get in the church, they're doing great. About three or four years later, they get all puffed up and think, I know a lot because God gave you a revelation, or you learned something along the way, and all of a sudden, you're thinking about yourself and what you, what's passing through your brain, and then you don't wait for God, and you don't wait for the man of God because now you're certain of yourself. Be very careful. About that. Now, of course, Saul is cut off. He's cut off. Let me just tell you, Saul is cut off from leadership long before he left the throne. Now, that bothers people. That really bothers a lot of folks. Well, if God cut him off, why didn't he just take him out? Because in God's time, he will handle his own man. He'll handle his own man. There's a couple things we ought not do. They cut off Saul's head and hung his body. Yes, and um, they paid a price for it. And then David came along. He is the second king of Israel. He represents the second or the next generation. He 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 learns on a on a field on a, in a shepherd's role. He learns because. Little does he know, Jesus would liken the church to sheep. And I don't really appreciate that, Lord. I I would like to be a cougar, mountain lion. I'd even take a wildebeest. But a sheep, man, they're dumb. They're real dumb. Now, they're not as dumb as turkeys, mind you. Turkeys will drown themselves because while it's raining, they'll look right up at the sky and they can drown themselves because they'll leave their mouth open. This is also, also National Geographic. I want you to leave here with a lot of information in your mind. We're, we're well-rounded Bible study teachers. He learns how to guide sheep. And in time, thousands of years later, Jesus will call the people the sheep of his pasture or the sheep These are the flock, feed the flock, he says. David is discounted by his fathers and his brothers. Let me just tell you, it's a great asset to him. It's a great thing. Now, I've talked about this before, and I will in the future, maybe even Sunday. But one of the greatest things you could ever go through is opposition. It's wonderful. It will make you strong. It will make your roots go deep. When you go through trouble and opposition, it'll make you grounded. Because if you never go through opposition, you're going to be a weak, you're going to be an inept Christian, you're going, to, you're going to fall when you should be standing, the slightest wind is going to knock you down. And family opposition is a great way for you to figure out that you love God and you're not going anywhere. If God called you, even if your own family rejects you, you have to say, God called me and I'm going to stay true. They'll, they'll accuse you of being prideful. Like Eliab, I know what's in your heart, David. The reason why you're asking about Goliath and the reward is because you're full of pride reading your Bible. And David said, is there not a cause? Amen, all right. Because there's always gonna be opposition, but that was a wonderful thing that happened to him. He found great military success at Elah, the Valley of Elah. That's where Goliath, he killed Goliath. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's amazing what he did. David's heart was in the right place. He was a musician. We're still singing his songs today. Thousands of years later. He was skilled with a passionate heart. David had his passion. Now I just want to let everyone know. Your gift is also your liability. He was great passionate. Could write poetry. And wrote all kinds of poetry. And sang. That same passion of course got him in trouble. When he stayed home from battle. And was walking on his rooftop. And overlooking all the other rooftops. And there. A woman was taking a bath. And what was her name? She be taking a bath. Bath Sheba. Sheba. All right. Whatever. Trying to I'm not I'm not trying to get the image, just want you to remember the word, the name. Okay. Sorry, this that went south. My God. I can't take my kids to church. Okay. So <laughs> every every battle he seemed to be successful in every battle almost every battle he was successful except for one battle one major battle he was not successful and that was the battle in which he decided to start looking at himself uh oh he started looking at himself and he counted his own army. He took a census of his own army, which is very odd because if you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll find out they did take a census of the tribes, of the armies on multiple occasions. But in this particular case, David took a census and God never asked him to. The reason why is because David was counting to see if he could win the battle. It's not, it's not really the count. It's who you're counting on. It's the who. Who? Not the number. And David led a divided people because he was anointed three times. He was anointed first. He was anointed with Samuel in the presence of his seven brothers and his doubtful father. The second time he was anointed in Hebron. Hebron with those men who liked him and were already attentive to him. And the third time, all of the nation anointed him. All the people came together, and that was in Jerusalem. He, he was the king for 40 years, but about seven years, he, he was the king in part. Well, I thought, God, when you anointed me that I'd have all of this. Well, it might take you a little while to get where God wants you to be. Just stay true. Here's a little word that the Lord said. If you'll be faithful in a little... I'll make you ruler over many. if, If you'll be faithful in what you have, I'll make you Lord over many. If I anoint you and you only have a handful, that's okay. In time, I'll give you another anointing. Just so all of you know, one anointing may not be enough. God can anoint you one, two, three times or as many times as he wants. I will tell you, I was anointed when I was a child. I was anointed when I was 14. I was anointed when I was 23 And I was anointed uh, in 1999, whatever age that was, 31. I hope I get another anointing this year. Amen. From the Lord. Specifically anointing from the Lord. But David had some issues because as I spoke, his victories led to complacency and he had an affair with a woman and as the prophet said, he stole one man's sheep. And he had her faithful, military, loyal husband murdered. Furthermore, David didn't guide his own children, he did very poorly as a father. His family issues resulted in the rape. One half brother raped an, uh, a half sister, there was a murder of that brother, that offender. The murderer developed a coup, and then he was killed by some of the military men. David didn't resolve his own issues. Even at his deathbed, he passed them on to the next generation. He did not complete everything. Now, how could that be? You see, I've often said this, but I, today I was just going through this again and talking this out. and The Lord, the Lord quickened something to my mind. What parents do in moderation, children do in excess. I'll have a little, but, but the next generation will have a lot. But in this particular case, Solomon is going to have a lot. In fact, he's going, to, he's going to have more than he will ever need, and it's going to get him in serious trouble. But where did that begin? That began early. In fact, that began in the first generation. It was expounded in the second generation because Saul was never content With who he was and what he had. And I can go through that. But when it got to to David, there was another command. And God told David, don't have too many horses, too much land, or too many wives. We could say, well, that's right, pastor. I don't have any horses. I don't even have a girlfriend, so hey. Okay. Wrong relationships is the wife. The wives don't have the wrong relationships. Guard your relationships. Land is your ambition. Don't have so much ambition. You should write this down. Relationships. Be careful of the relationships. Not every relationship is good for you. I'm not talking about girlfriend, boyfriend. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about people who speak negative things in your ear, who complain all the time, who murmur all the time. Who pick on everybody all the time? I'm talking about self-righteous people or people who have no standard and no conviction. Either way, guard. And the second thing is ambition—is your whole life wrapped up so you can get ahead and, and 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 you you want something? It's ambition of your life. Where did the kingdom come? See, when we start talking about spiritual health, you got to realize the only way to be spiritual is to have my mind and my heart set on the kingdom. Your ambition should be the kingdom. Here's what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added to you. Well, how can all these things be added to me if they're in conflict with the kingdom? I, I, I saw an old Ferrari. It's a Ferrari GTO. I think it's in 1963 something, whatever. Just a little thought. That's really nice. If I loved it and if I wanted it, well, that's not really in line with the kingdom. Here's what happens. While you're seeking the kingdom, he changes what you desire. The kingdom pursuit rearranges all these things. So these things are not the same things that you began with. (laughs) Uh Your, your, Your passions and loves and desires, as you start seeking the kingdom, God helps you. To now want things, desire things that are not self-ambition. And then the third thing, of course, is the horses. Because for a king, the horse, the many horses meant he was somebody. That's called image, self. (laughs) I want to look good. I want everyone to think that I'm good. So you've got relationships, you've got got ambitions, and you've got image. And that is the affliction of this modern-day church. It happens in great proportions in the second generation. The third king came along. His name was Solomon. And Solomon had the greatest prayer that could ever be prayed. And this is the prayer that I pray for the entirety of my life. All three kings that I just mentioned had some very phenomenal traits at the beginning. Humility, total reliance on God, that was Saul. Passion and a heart to restore the kingdom and to bring back the Ark of the Covenant, that was David. And Solomon, the right prayer. It's called the main thing or the one. I call it the one thing. You can call it something. See, if you go for the one thing, the main thing, you get everything else. If you go the peripherals, you get the peripheral. In a church, if you go for someone's money, you might get an offering. But if you go for the fish, you get everything that's in the fish's mouth. We're after the fish. I'd rather have five hundred people come to church Sunday than someone to give me a five million dollar offering. Let's go get the people. God'll supply the need. Jesus didn't go to Samaria. He went to the well and found one woman at a well, and he got the whole city. That's right. (laughs) You go for the right thing, God gives you the rest of the thing. And God said, what do you want, Solomon? He said, I want wisdom for this, thy people. And God said, because he didn't ask for victories or money or influence or wealth You didn't ask for any of that. I'm going to give you all of that because you asked for the right thing. And the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, ask of God. If you feel like and know I'm not wise, I need to have wisdom. You're not going to get it from a textbook. You get information from a textbook. You might get how to. But if you want wisdom, you got to pray, God, give me wisdom. And God is the one who gives wisdom. Amen. And Solomon built the temple. So... This was the desire of his father. And he expanded the nation of Israel. It was an incredible time. But Solomon also compromised himself because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he probably didn't know all those women. But also he compromised because he would build temples to their gods. They were marriages for treaties. Marriages for governmental influences. He'd marry that king's daughter and that king's daughter and, 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 and that daughter and... They would say, well, well, we'll let you marry our daughter, but we, we serve the, god, the sun god, and we serve the god of the, of the moon crescent. And he built all those temples. And the groves and the high places. And he failed to raise his own sons in the fear of God. And he ended his life knowing that all things were vain. In fact, he said, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity. It takes exorbitantly wealthy, rich men, in our dollars today, it would be unfathomable how much money that Solomon owned. Trillions, trillions of dollars. The gold was like gravel. That was the third generation that came. And then the fourth generation. The fourth was then the, div- the division. Because when you get to the fourth, you lose everything. Rehoboam on your paper, that's the second name there. Rehoboam was actually the son of Solomon. But Rehoboam, wasn't, he wasn't an ethical man, and he wasn't a godly man. He didn't follow the principles and attributes of the Lord. Jeroboam was a great faithful captain. He was a great military man. And so, and so instead of giving all tribes to Jeroboam, Solomon heard from God and knew, well, we—we we, for the sake of David, uh, we'll, we'll leave Jerusalem in the hands of Rehoboam. We'll give him Judah. So now the nation is divided. To the north is Israel. The, the the capital city of that of that nation now will be called Samaria. To the south is Judah. The capital will be Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the prize, but most of the tribes, ten in fact, of the tribes, will go towards Jeroboam. But Jeroboam feels uh, the wrong feeling, really. He, he should have just relied upon God, but he was afraid. Because he got a little power, he was afraid. and He started out pretty good, but, but man, it didn't take long until finally he had a duplication. He decided, this is the fourth generation, he decided, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Why do that? And he introduced convenience. Convenience was introduced. In the fourth generation, he introduced a new altar. He built an altar that was very similar to the altar at Mount Moriah. Is everybody still with me now? Good. That's Jeroboam. And Jeroboam said, why go all the way up? Now it's south, but, but, but it's up because Moriah is high. Why go up? It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I can give you an altar here and you don't have to make the journey. The journey is always important. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, it's the journey that saves you. It's the journey. You need to make the journey. If church or living for God is convenient, you're going to die. You're going to be spiritually dead. I'll tell you why. Because the first tent of of, of Moses was not the tabernacle. It was just a tent, and it was on the outside of the camp. And everybody could go to the tent. The second one was the tabernacle, and it was the middle of of all all the people of Israel. Three million people gathered around that, and they went inward. And the third one was the temple, and it was stationary, and no one had to travel. The first one moved with them, but it was always on the outside and everybody could go. The second one was in the middle. It was a lot more convenient than just being way on the outside and only a few could go. And the third one, only a handful can go and it was stationary and no one had to guess where it was going to be. It was not led by the Holy Holy Spirit or the cloud. The temple was not governed by the cloud. (laughs) You want convenience? I'll tell you what convenience is going to do. It's going to destroy your passion for God. And in the fourth generation, all they care about is what's convenient. Of course, Rehoboam was even worse. Because he took his advice from his peers. The elders said, be kind to the people and they'll be kind to you. And he went to his friends and said, what do you guys think? And they said, hey. And you should make, you're the king. You should make them serve you. And he went back and said to the people, you think my dad taxed you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it so hard that it's going to be really bad. He compared the thigh to his finger. He said, he said it's going to be hard. I'm going to make it hard on you. And he lost the goodwill that he began with because he listened to his friends. The fourth generation have no elders. None. They have no voice. They listen to whatever's current, and they give guidance, and they get their guidance from whatever is relevant. How's everybody doing? So this is the fourth generation. Now there's a nation divided. It's never going to be reunited again. Kings are in the north and south. Most of them are compromised. They leave the law of Moses. Only inadvertently is the law brought back. It's very, very infrequent. They lose sight of God. There's prophets, judges, priests all through the Old Testament, and most of them were killed by the people. Because when, when the prophets and the judges and the priests, when they didn't, didn't say what the people liked, they just killed them. Today, it's not a, a direct murder. It's just people get up and leave the church and go somewhere else where it's more, more palatable to them. And then the children, oh my goodness, the children were encouraged to disobey the law. They told their young prophets, don't prophesy. And they gave their young men and young women strong drink. They, want them, they wanted them to defile themselves with alcohol. That's in your Bible. So this was a total devastation of the fourth generation. False teachers, false prophets. And those are the voices that lead the nation. And of course, eventually, they're overtaken by other countries. Let me just tell you about chairs. Um, I, I, need, um, I need someone to bring me, Luke, Luke, would you bring me four chairs? And you bring, put four chairs on the platform for me. Maybe someone else can help them and just get just get, unlock those four chairs. Thank you, gentlemen. Strong, let's give our strong, well, no, don't, don't clap for them. Let's see how they do. First, let's see how they do. Let's see, okay, Luke's got two, one, okay. Thanks for taking it easy. Thank you so much, right here. Bring it bring it out to the front. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You have to be a Marine to pick up two. Okay, praise God. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Okay. Pretty good. Four chairs. Now you're going to sit. Thank you, gentlemen. Now we'll clap our hands for you. It is. You've done almost nothing but give us a little comic relief. So praise God. Now the first chair is the new convert. I have a view of the new convert, but I am not the convert. The convert is not raised in the faith. The convert comes from outside to learn the doctrine that's already been established. They learn new ideas, a new concepts, a new way of living. They, they have to break a lot of things in their life to get to where they are. They are in mostly rebuttal of their family. Their family doesn't really care about them. They don't really want them to adopt this brand new way of living. They're in the first chair. They are unique. Before I go any further, let me just tell you, that's the only chair that matters right there. And every one of us have got to get in that chair. And it doesn't matter what generation you are, you've got to strive to get in that chair. You've got to grope, climb, crawl on your hands and knees to get in that chair. That's the one you've got to get to. In that chair, that new convert is the first generation, they're anointed, and they begin by saying, I can't do it, I don't know it, and they're groping for understanding. Tell me who you are, Lord, tell me who you are. They have to cleanse their mind of all other doctrines, even false doctrines that came from the Bible, or false teachers, or some of them have no Bible whatsoever. They're introduced to God, ideas of a philosophical concept of the Lord even. They gotta trade the, the philosophy of the world to this biblical concept. It's, it's a biblical worldview. It's it's Christocentric. it's Christ-centered. And then they set up new boundaries. They're kind of groping along. They really don't know what the boundary should be. They're just they're kind of learning what a conviction means, a conviction. And, and at first they're thinking, well, well, they're not doing that in the church, so I'm not going to do it. And finally, God starts to speak to them and say, Well, let's 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 understand there's the Bible. There's the principles, and then there's your personal convictions. And it takes them a little while to figure that out. The Bible is irrefutable. It doesn't matter what you think. You don't have to have a conviction about what's in the Scripture. It's the Word of God. He doesn't care. He doesn't need your vote, your validation. It's the Word of the Lord. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, and you don't need a conviction to know that. You can't lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, fornication because it's in the Scripture. <laughs> Strong drink is a mocker. It's in the Bible. I don't, I don't need to say, well, what's your conviction about it? It's in the scripture. You don't need a conviction for that. It's in the Bible. So they figure out what's in the scripture. And then as they go along, they realize, oh man, there are some principles that are not necessarily written out in the scripture. But but it's the principle of it. And I understand it comes from the Bible. And then finally they grab a hold of personal convictions. And they realize this is something that will keep me. It's a boundary. It's a self-imposed conviction. A self-imposed boundary that helps me serve God. I just can't go there. Why? Well, because I came out of that. And, 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 and I, I just can't go and sit in that atmosphere because that's the atmosphere that, that helped me bound. And so I can't go back there. I, I've got to stop that. Now, not everyone's going to think that way. You'll see this in a moment. Not everyone's even going to buy into that. But they know because they're the first generation. They're the first year. And they're just leaning on God. And their greatest attribute is this. Like Saul, I don't know what to do. I'm small in my own eyes. Oh, so God, help me. They constantly pray, oh, God, give me understanding and revelation because I don't know. They're gleaning from the Lord. They want God. They, they don't know protocols. They don't know how to dance, shout, jump. They don't know all that stuff. They, they don't know, they don't know when, when when to say what. They're kinda, sometimes they, they cry out right in the middle of offering. <laughs> and uh, one of the other chairs helps them be quiet, Barnabas, be quiet. You're bothering the master. It's the second, third, fourth chairs that are looking over at Barnabas saying, you're embarrassing us. But the first chair cries out the more, thou son of David, have mercy on me, I need you. And the moment that the second, third, and fourth chair have their way with the first chair, there'll be no silence in the church and no healings in the church because healing comes from desperation. And when you finally get desperate, you won't care if it's offering. You'll just get up and say, I've got to be healed today. I've got to be delivered today. And the first chair, they just don't care. They want God so much. They don't want to be inappropriate, but they know if I don't have him tonight, I will never have him. The first chair thinks that the Lord is coming back. They don't want to miss the rapture and they don't want to be lost because they believe the word. The first chair First chair loves God. They want to tell everybody. They want to tell all their friends. Their friends say, you're crazy. What are you doing? They keep going back over and over again. In fact, the first chair is always, almost always the generation that does the most soul winning in the church. Because they think, they believe. That if you don't receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, like the preacher said, you can't go to heaven and I can ill afford for you to be lost. You're my best friend. Yes, right. And they start to make changes in their conduct. Nobody even tells them to do that, but there's something inside of them that says, I don't think I should watch that movie. and I can't say that word. and I don't think I should wear that thing. It's, it's not, I don't know. And the principles start to change. And then and then there's the money thing, the big money question. Oh man, tithes, returning your tithing, man. All their friends saying, "What are you talking about, man? That place is costing you a lot of money." And but they believe that they won't rob God. Will a man rob God? You're going to rob God. You rob me in your tithes and offerings. And and they read Malachi three, and then they read what Jesus said. Hey, don't just tithe on the mint, but also do more than just tithe, but also have respect. And all of a sudden, they're making changes with their money. And then it's just, it, it just envelops their entire life, the first chair. Now their entire life. Now, guess what the first chair does? They want to live close to the church. They rearrange their vacations so they don't miss a revival. They, they'll, they'll look for a job that'll keep them in the house even for Sunday. Oh, the first chair, they're crazy. They're nuts. I mean, I'm telling you what, they go all out. Man, they love God. They don't care who you are, what you are. They're coming to serve the Lord. They love the Lord. They need God. They say, listen, I'm nobody without God. And they'll tell you over and over where they came from because it's fresh in their mind. That's the first chair. Yeah, I've told this story, but I've got to tell you. My father grew up in an atheist agnostic home. He didn't have anybody to tell him. He didn't know. He led the song service as a teenager in the Methodist church. That's it. But nobody went to church with him. His older sister and younger brother didn't go. They didn't believe in God. My grandpa Harpo drank himself to death. I never saw him without a beer in his hand. He never had a, had a, had a can, but he also always had a cup with a frosted top, and he always had a, a cold beer next to him. And I never saw my grandma Harpo without a cigarette. She smoked herself to death. She died of lung cancer. And my my grand, grandparents and, um, um, and the Farinos, uh, uh, they were staunch Catholic. And my mother came to church. And when she came, she was sneaking in. And, and and nobody even knew she was there. She would sit on the back row and she'd go to Catholic Mass on, on, on Saturday and Sunday morning and Sunday night. She'd sneak off to White Way Tabernacle in St. Louis and she'd watch all the crazy Pentecostals run around. And then mom and dad were dating, and that was their date. They'd sneak into the back of the church and watch these Pentecostals speak in tongues. They never saw anything like it. It was like a show. And my mother turned to my father when they were teenagers, and she said, Billy, I like you, but I'm not marrying you till you get the Holy Ghost. And he turned and said, Rosalie, you don't even have the Holy Ghost. She said, I don't care. And when they got married, none of the family would even come to the wedding. And all the young ladies in the church said, Rosie, I'll be in your wedding. I'll be in your wedding. <laughs> and then the first chair started, and they came to church almost every night of the week. They worked on the church. They immediately became youth leaders. They got in the ministry. They started, in fact, they jumped into pastoring, had no idea what they were doing. Dad had a King James Bible and a, and a big green uh, Strong's Concordance. That's it. That's all they had. First chair. And then up pops Scotty and Jeffrey and Dana, and we're sitting in the second chair. There's the second chair. That's where I sit. I've been in the second chair sitting here. I'm pretty close to them. I like what they do. Not right next to them. Because, see, when mom and dad started the ministry, they didn't know where their money was going to come from. And a lot of times people would bring meat to our home. My grandpa helped out a lot. He had a garden. He, had a, he, he, he dug a well, had well water, and he, would always, he was a butcher, so we always had meat from the cows because he'd always raise a cow. That was fresh produce, fresh meat, and well water. Today they call it organic. When I was growing up, that was called poor. Rich people went to Kroger. The second chair, man, that's pretty good. You see, Saul already had it all already done. He had all the government lined out. He had the monarch. He had a kingdom. He had a palace. He had all the robes. In fact, the crown was already created before David ever got to the throne. Mm -hmm. Now, the second chair is a little different. They are the children of the convert. They are not the convert. It was assumed that they would be baptized because they grew up in the church. This is a wonderful place to be, and this is the appropriate thing to do. But they are raised by hungry parents. They don't inherently have the same hunger. Now, they have boundaries, but the boundaries that they have at first don't start out. They don't start out by themselves. In fact, those are imposed boundaries. And they live sometimes off the convictions of their parents. The second chair often gets confused with what's in the Bible and what their parents' personal convictions are. And when they don't know the difference... They convolute and they throw it all out. This is a very dangerous thing. They view the fervency of their parents. And they love that. They adopt the passion of their parents. And sometimes they are very, very passionate. They seek to establish their own relationship with God. Because they have to seek that. It's it's not pressed on them the same way. They really don't have the opposition that mom and dad had. And... The downside, of course, is that they will question the reason for their lifestyle. They'll compare people that they grew up with. And sometimes they'll even compare their parents' extended families. Because mom and dad still have a lot of connections. They'll lean toward the conviction of their parents, but they really do it mostly through love and respect. Yes, that's me. I didn't always have the convictions like I have now. Because my mother preached to me at her stove. And my father preached to me at his pulpit. And my mother's sermons were always better. Because at the end of her sermon, she would feed me pasta. I, although dad did invite me to play the drums. That was a wonderful thing. So, so the second chair leans in. But they're going to struggle. And they're struggling because they didn't really dig out. What the first chair had. They, they, they didn't really sacrifice for it. Now they share in it. But they didn't sacrifice. There's a lot of sharing of it. It's an adoption. And the way that the second chair can get in the first chair. Is that they've got to do a lot of self-imposed sacrifices. And self-yearning. They've got to yearn. That means not separating. But they got to ask the questions. And they start in this way. Write it down. Thankfulness. They have to be thankful for what the first chair went through. Here is an indication of the last times. Perilous times shall come. In the last days, there'll be effeminacy, adultery, lying, thieves. Ooh, here's another one. Unthankful. In the last days, one of the attributes will be unthankful. Unthankful will permeate the church. Can you imagine that people being unthankful is categorized by Paul in the same way that the adulterer is? Or the effeminate. Or unnatural affection. Paul includes unthankful. The the first step is to be thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you sacrificed. Thank you for giving me this. Because thankfulness leads to honor. Number two. I respect. I honor what they did. I honor them. I honor their sacrifice. I honor. And the third one is, is... if, if I could put it like this, it's, it's don't write this down yet. It's education. It's learning. It's, it's, it's understanding. I've got to understand. What did you find? I'm asking questions about that. Instead of relying upon myself and relying upon all the other people, I'm learning that. I'm learning it. They've got to purposely constrain themselves so that they're not watch, so they don't have personal ambition because that's, that's an infection in the second chair. Image, that's a... And bad relationships don't have too many houses, I'm sorry, too many wives, too much land, or too many horses. And that is always prevalent in the second chair, where the second chair leans on image, loves ambition, and 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 really they they really like their their, their relationships with a lot of people. They think they can handle all that. They'll still go back to mom and dad or to the first. And you don't have to have mom and dad. It could just be a generation removed. <laughs> you can find this to be true even in succession in Judges chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I, I won't go through it. I don't have time. The, I don't have a clock back there, so I don't really don't know if it's 10 o'clock or 9.30. Thank you for not putting that up. And my watch is kinetic. If you don't set the time, it doesn't tell you. So it's just stuck right now on... 11.45. Okay. This is the second chair. They're close. They've got to yearn for it. They've got to do a lot of investigation. Number three, they've got to do investigation. They've got to learn, ask the questions. If the second chair is going to survive, they're going to have to do things that are unnatural Think, this first chair had natural opposition. The second chair has been covered. Watch, the second chair must pray and they must fast and they must give. The first generation didn't have anything because that's, that's what it was imposed on them. They had nothing, so it was built in. It was baked in. See, their sacrifice was their life. The second chair If they're going to have sacrifice and identify with the first chair, they have to institute it in their own daily walk. Prayer, fasting, sacrifice, giving, serving. Let's do it again. Prayer, fasting, sacrifice, giving, serving. If they'll do that, they'll make their way and get as close as they can until probably they're just kind of right on top. I just, this is what I want to be. I just want to be right on top of that. I'm not truly the new convert, but I want to be right on top of it. I want to grope for it. I want God to use me. I want to see the miracle signs and wonders. I grew up watching people healed in the church. My dad was a terrible decorator. He, He drilled holes in the side of the wall and put big high hooks in the side of the wall. And when anyone walked out of a wheelchair, we hung the wheelchair on the side of the wall. Terrible decoration, but it's very effective. I grew up looking at wheelchairs on the side of our wall, not pictures. So you know... I'm not satisfied with being way down there. I've got to get close as I can. And the only way I know is through prayer, fasting, sacrifice, giving, and serving. You want to be spiritual, I'm going to show you how to be spiritual. But if you want to be carnal, I'll show you how how the carnality, where carnality leads. Because a lot of churches are filled with carnal people. Children, teenagers, adults, subjectivism, individualism. Me, selfie, concepts, what I like, heavily opinionated people. (laughs) All right. (sighs) Hallelujah. Not one amen, but hey, you know, amen. I'll amen myself. Third, here's the third chair. Now, the third chair has an ideology. And the third chair, hmm. Let's do it this way. Here's the first chair. Here's the second chair. Hopefully. And here's the third chair. Because the third chair has some terrible, some terrible things that it goes through. They are the grandchildren of the convert. But sometimes that the grandparents though they've done all this sacrifice in their life now they're in their 70s and 60s, 70s they look back and they see I've lost relationships. Because the third chair you see they're innovative. They didn't work to get close to their parents. In fact, they called out all the inconsistencies and hypocrisies of the church. They saw them. And when they saw them It divided them. Maybe their parents fasted and prayed and sacrificed and gave, but their parents didn't want them to do that. This is America also. Because after World War II, parents came home from the sacrifice where there was blood, sweat, pain, tears, loss, and death. And they didn't want their children to grow up in that same sacrificial way. So they made sure their kids had it better. And their kids said, we'll make it better on you. So what happened here... Didn't happen here. In this world. They grew up in the depression. And they understood what a loaf of bread meant. In this era. They grew up with technology. And they thought they deserved it. So the third generation. Is the entitled generation. This is not in your paper. You can write it down. The third generation is the entitled generation. They think they should be spiritual. And have all the provisions of God. But never make a sacrifice. They understand how to cut corners in holiness. Yes. Because they know how to get by with a few things, what to wear, what not to wear, how to look kind of worldly, but not quite. And they know all the things. In fact, they know how to pray, cry, jump, shout, but they're really not into it. It's just a tradition format. The third generation, if, if they are in that third seat, that third chair, they are far removed from the conversion. They have no conversion. They were baptized as children, but they don't really have a walk with God. And because they see all these inconsistencies, they point them out on a regular basis. Thus, here's one of the attributes of the third chair. They are self-justified. Now, they consider traditions and standards and boundaries as bondage, unnecessary. Why would I do that? It's Just boundaries. In fact, they'll point out good people in the world that are not filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those are good people. How can you condemn them? I'm sitting at a table with some of the most profound musicians that ever graced the Pentecostal movement. It was right after a big concert where all of the major songwriters of the United States gathered. I'm sitting at a big table with all of our Pentecostal musicians. I am a young 21-year-old kid. I'm the youngest of them all. Everyone else is married. All of us are songwriters. They're the best. Here's, here's, the, here's the, the conversation of the third generation. My, wasn't that a great concert? Yes. Man, weren't those songs blessed of God? Yes. Third third line. Weren't they anointed? Oh, they all said they were anointed. How could they be lost and still be anointed and write songs like that? Here, they're saved. It went from how great it was to salvation. You see, if talent meant salvation, Michelangelo and Da Vinci would have been saved. Carvaggio would have been saved. Mozart would have been saved. But talent and wonderful words and lyrics and musics and chord chart, all that, that does not constitute salvation. No. Talent doesn't mean salvation. But in the third chair, they equate salvation with anointing with salvation. Because they're calloused. Because they make allowances. Why? Because mom and dad made allowances, they fought a little bit, but grandparents didn't want to lose the relationship. So grandparents said, I'll pray for you, honey. I'll give the $20. I'll help you with Sheets for Christ and move the mission offering. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You don't have to, you don't have to go through the pain. I'll go through it for you because I don't want you to have to go without. And then all of a sudden, they stripped them of all the sacrifice and stripped them of all the fasting and said, Oh, honey, you don't have to do that. I know what the preacher said. I know what we did back then. But the days have changed now. And all of a sudden, that third chair is disassociated with conviction. Yes. They don't have conviction. Instead, they have self-justification. That's what they have. They don't have passion. They seek other forms of deluded religions. They question doctrine. Well, how can you say if people are not baptized, they're going to go to hell? The Bible doesn't explicitly say that if you're not baptized, you're going to go to hell. And that's right. It doesn't. See, they know the Bible enough to tear apart the very fabric of our doctrine. And when they're done, they have nothing. Here's what the Bible says. Because they love not the truth, God turned them over to a reprobate mind. And they didn't know right from wrong. You have the truth, and if you don't love it, you don't know. But God can turn you over to a reprobate mind. You don't know what's, what's true and what's a lie. And if it comes from God, see, a lie can come from God and from the devil. Go read your Bible where the angel said, I'll go, Lord, and I'll go with a lying spirit. Hmm. Uh-oh. You got to love the truth you got to die for the truth. And if you're in that chair right there, what you need to do is say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to crawl on my hands and my knees until I make it to this chair. I'll do the sacrifice. Don't do it for me. I'll do it myself. And I'll get up and I'll do it myself. I don't want to do it by tradition. I want to do it by desire, yearning, until I climb past that and get a relationship with God. If we don't have that... Here's what we have. We have religion, but we have no faith or relationship. If this is where we are, which is where many churches are today, they have no Holy Ghost, no miracles, and no signs, and no wonders, and no no conviction, and they run out their preachers because he tells them this is in the Word of God. But they don't think that. They think, well, that's just the religion of my grandparents. Let me just tell you, if this is not your faith... You're dead. This can't, this got to be your faith. It can't be the faith of grandparents. It can't be my mom and dad's faith. It can't be anyone's faith. It can't be your faith. In fact, listen, I'll preach this, but I'm not the only one. you got to rise up and say, I love you, pastor. But I'll tell you what, i got to have it for myself. I can't rely upon your passion or your fasting or your prayer. What's going to burst forth in this church is we're all going to climb back into the first chair. Where the anointing was first poured out. Where the Holy Ghost was first poured out. Because if you don't, what you'll do is you'll walk in and you'll condemn everybody. And you'll say, I'm just as saved as you are. Just because I don't live a holy life like, well, your holiness doesn't mean I'm lost. And they'll argue with you face to face because they're calloused. I want to talk to all of the first chair apostolic Pentecostals in this house. Grope, yearn, don't ever let go. You fought for it this far. Don't let go. You tell your children you're going to have to have a walk with God just by yourself. I'm going to do this, but come on. You can adopt it, but you got to ask the questions, and you got to have humility, and you got to have honor, and you got to have respect, and you got to have fervency. Let me tell you why the second chair and the third chair are struggling. Because the first chair got accustomed to everything. And they said, well, look what I'm doing. And I want to say to the first chair, there was a day when you were groping for God and you were small in your own eyes. Get back to that and say, it's not me, Lord, but it's you and I've got to have sacrifice. Here, here, first chair people, first chair. Listen, first chair, wherever you are, don't make the sacrifice for your children and definitely not for your grandchildren. You are stripping them of the blessing. Don't accommodate them and say, well, honey, you look good. It's okay. I, I, I suppose it's all right. And, and the third chair will tell, well, this is a different day, mom and dad. Come on, grandpa. This is a different day. This is, Come on, you didn't even have a cell phone in your day. So what? I'll tell you what we had. We had wheelchairs on the side of the wall. We had power in the Holy Ghost. I can only do this for myself. I'm going to tell you, I can only do it for myself. I can't do it for you. I cannot do it for you. But my mama and my daddy was fasting one day. They went on a fast and, and I said, I don't know if I can do that. And, and, and so we went on a, a one day fast. I was hungry the whole time. And then, and then the Holy Ghost hit our whole house and we all started to fast. And I remember fasting one whole week. It was grueling. I was, I was just a young teenager and I dreamed of red lobster every night. In those days, they had a little dish called Longestino with butter, small little baby lobster. You love the baby lobster. Man, let's talk about baby lobster. That's the best. Baby lobster. They don't even have baby lobster no more. Uh That's what I dreamed of every night for seven nights in a row. I dreamed of baby lobster. I dreamed of Red Lobster because we, we never really got to go to Red Lobster unless my brother took us. He had a job. He didn't have a girlfriend, so he took me and Dana on dates on Friday night to Red Lobster. I hated the day he got a girlfriend. <laughs> uh-huh. hmm That's right. I'm gonna tell here, young people, you can be a soul winner. You can be a giver. Follow the ambitions of God. Seek the Lord first. I love your parents. I'm preaching to them. But listen, don't disrespect your mom and dad or your grandparents. Don't disrespect them. But if they're not going to worship, you love them, but you worship Someday you're going to grow up and you're going to have your own home and your own apartment, your own car, your own house, your own career. And that's the moment we're going to say, hey, listen, I got I to get some stuff done by myself. And you can't live on my sacrifice. You can't live on mine. You got you to live on your own sacrifice. I'm doing it for myself and for the congregation because that's the role that I'm in. I pray for everybody, but my prayers are for you, but they're not for you towards God. They're, 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 I mean, I'm sorry, they, they can't put words in your mouth, so, so you got to speak out of your own mouth you got to make your own sacrifices If you want to change your life, if you want to be in the first chair, you got to grope for it. There are no shortcuts to get there. None. you got to need God and grope for God. And when you walk in on Sunday, you got to say, Lord, I'm coming in. Don't walk in after a, listen, don't walk in after a long weekend and say, Sunday is the last day of a long weekend. You should walk in saying, Sunday is the first day of the, of the first week. Amen. Man, we got to have first chairs filled. I'd like to see first chairs everywhere. And if you're in the second chair, I want you to get up and grope for the first. I want you to go back and say, what did you do? When did you gather? When did you pray? When did you need God? Yes. I, I just want to look at the middle part of that. What, what time is it? Is it? Still, it's still 11.50. Time stood still for Joshua. They consider boundaries as yokes of bondage. Oh my, you mean the boundaries that have kept you? I love to be proven right. Isn't it nice to be proven right every once in a while? Don't you like to end up at the right place even though you didn't use your GPS? <laughs> even though you didn't push in the little address, but you knew where to go. And, or, or you knew the answer and everybody said that's not the answer, but you were proven right after all. The problem is, during the argumentation, a lot of horrible things happen. When we were preaching separation by clothing style for men and women... People were arguing. Who was arguing? The second chair was arguing. The first chair tried to make allowances. They wanted to soften it up because of their love, which wasn't really love. It was fear of losing the relationship. Because love would have said, oh, no, honey, we're going to hold this. But we were preaching separation of genders by clothing style. That was long before I came along. But the second chair argued, and the third chair said, hey, that's just old-fashioned. Now we have people today that, that proclaim there is no gender. But you were beating up all the holiness standards years ago. Now we're proven right, but the damage has been done. So maybe you should just trust that the people that are sitting in the first chair have borne out something, had revelation from God. You might not understand it, but be obedient to it. Amen. And then comes the fourth chair finally. One of my friends went to a church in Texas. He said they had a guest preacher come to the church. And the choir was singing. And the guest preacher started to talk a little about, right in the middle of a sermon, about speaking in other tongues. This was an old, established, Pentecostal church. But of course, the first chair was gone and the second chair was gone. And the third chair diluted everything. And when they had children, they never even talked about Pentecost. And the youth pastor's wife leaned forward. She was singing in the choir. When the guest preacher started talking about speaking in tongues, and the youth pastor's wife leaned forward and looked across and said, what is speaking in tongues? What is that? That church was over 100 years old in Pentecost with baptisms and Holy Ghost and miracles and signs and wonders. But the first, church, first chair had died. The second chair had questioned everything and did not have honor and respect. And the third chair diluted everything. And by the time the third chair had their babies, they grew up and never told them anything about the doctrine. And there's an entire generation of young people that never ever heard of Acts 238. Now, even worse than that, are kids sitting in the fourth chair that are atheists and agnostic, and they don't know any of the history of their own family, because they wouldn't talk about it. This is the fourth chair, the' raised without the knowledge of the original conversion. You see, one of the reasons why I keep telling you over and over about my mother and my father. Is because I want to remind you of a first chair that you'll never know, but you got to hear it, and you got to know. If you are abandoned by every friend and every family you've ever had, you stay true to the to the to the salvation that you've heard. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. They have no relationship with sacrifice of the original. They don't even know what sacrifice is. In fact, sacrifice to the fourth chair looks sadistic. It's like why would you cut yourself with a knife or beat yourself? Why would you starve yourself? Fasting to the fourth chair is starvation. (laughs) Prayer is a waste of time. See, the third chair, you know what the third chair does? They have thoughts and prayers. They have prayers. They have fervent prayers of a righteous man. Let's do it again. Fervent prayers of a righteous man. Prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Now today it's just thoughts. Tragedy in the world. The first chair you know what they're doing? They got to church. It's Thursday night at midnight. They're all getting together, praying, speaking in tongues. The first chair is John Mark's mother's house. Peter is in prison. And the first chair, you know what those first, the first church did, we're going to go to pray because James has been killed and Peter's next, but we're going to pray that God does something. And while they're praying, the angels of the most high God visit him in jail and take him out. Because the first chair has prayer meetings like that. They're not waiting for someone to say, it's prayer time, everybody. Would you sign up? No. They're praying every day. And in an emergency, they're getting together with fervent prayers. The second chair prays. They pray, sometimes out of honor and respect, sometimes because on the schedule. But the second one has thoughts and prayers, which they've introduced humanism now. I'm thinking of you. And what is the prayer here? It's the emoji. Now, that emoji was not the praying hands. It was a high five. But everybody thinks it's a prayer. It didn't start out as a prayer. It started a high five. So when you send me praying hands, I think you just gave me a high five. That's why I reply with a chicken and the flag of Uruguay. And then you got this one. They don't have any prayers, just thoughts. That's modernism, thoughts, secularism, thoughts. If they ever say pray, I'm wondering who you're praying to. You outlawed God. You took the Lord out of your prayer. You won't say in Jesus' name. This is where you stop saying that because you didn't want to be offensive to all the other people in the world. And the fourth chair, they are in hypostasy. They have no relationship with the Lord. Their history is just old stories. It's like old history books. Oh, man, yeah, you probably didn't have running water either. They don't believe in absolutes. Everything's in a constant state of flux. They may enjoy the idea of God or religion, but they live subjectively. You know what they'll say? Well, everybody's okay. Everybody has their own thing. You do what you do. You do what you do. That's good for you. I like what you do. Now, it's not good for me and a lot of other people out there. That's the fourth chair. The fourth chair, they, they are divided. They are Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They listen to their, to their, to their friends for advice, and they love convenience. That's right. And they are removed from the original call. Okay. I'm praying for those people. These people, they need to be converted. They need conversion. They've not even been baptized in Jesus' name. They've not repented of their sins. They need to realize their sinners go into a devil's hell. These people right here, they need to be rebuked. They've had it too easy for too long. They're living on the sacrifices of everybody else and they, 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 they're arguing about everything. Stop arguing. If you're in the third chair, stop arguing and don't share your opinions. You don't even know what it took to get here. And if you really want to help yourself, honor what you see even if you don't understand it, honor it. <laughs> I told you this is, I, I would rather nobody even was in this building. Hey, let me do this honor that you don't have to agree with it but honor it I can't make you agree but at least have some decency and respect and know you didn't get here by yourself have a little recognition, and if you want to change, then get on your hands and knees and crawl in humility until you climb and say, how did you get here? And then when you're here, you say, I got to get back to fervency, and If you could do anything, ask everybody, move away. I'm making my own sacrifice. Move away. I'm starting my own thing. I've got to win somebody, and I've got to speak in tongues, and I've got to shout to the Lord, and I've got to clap my hands unto the Lord, and I've got to have my own walk with God. If the church wants to be a spiritual giant, if the the church today, if new life wants to be a spiritually healthy church, then everybody's got to say, I'm going back to the beginning. And I've sat here in this chair so many times and I've talked to my dad. And I said, Dad, how did you do it? And my dad said, nobody told me. Nobody told me how to do it. Nobody told me how to run the finances. Nobody told me how to prepare a sermon. He taught a one-hour Sunday school lesson. He preached a one-hour sermon. After that, he came back for prayer for one hour. And then they had service for two or three more hours. And by the time Sunday night was done, he got up in the morning, and he cleaned the church, and he vacuumed, and he cut the grass. And they cleaned out all the stuff and didn't have any money. And, and, and they prayed, and they counted all the pennies and nickels and dimes on Monday morning and, and didn't have enough money to pay all the bills. And he went out and got a job and started working. He he left a good engineering job working for the railroads and mom left a good place. But they said, we're going to pour our whole heart into the Lord. And so he started painting houses and he, he did whatever he could because he thought if it's just bivocational, I don't care. I'm going to reach the loss. And he didn't know what to do because no one gave him any structure. He didn't have internet, didn't have, didn't have teachers, no one had a manual, no one had anything. But I'll tell you what they did have. They had prayer and they had had fasting, they had giving, they had all the stuff that they needed, they, they needed the Lord. They didn't know all, all what to do but they had sacrifice and they had fervency and there are more miracles in that church than I've ever seen in my entire life and I've walked into conferences with all the big dame preachers and all the people and I'm looking around, where are the miracles at? I'll tell you what, they pontificate about their voices. I would say to the church right here today, you are the preacher get in the streets, compel them have a prayer meeting in your living room pray until something breaks Listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be coarse or, or harsh on you, but I, I just feel this in the Holy Ghost. A lot of our people now are tuning into to sermons every day. You're, turning in, you're listening to a lot of sermons, but you're doing nothing with what you know. Have you listened to that guy? Oh, he's so good. I'm glad he's so good. Why don't you have an idol of him and just worship him? Why don't you put his picture up and burn some incense and bow down and worship him? You're listening to all that stuff, but you're not in the streets and you're not going anywhere. And you think you're spiritual and you're really inept and you're dying inside. You live for another sermon. You live for another high. You're looking for somebody to give you another sermon, another lesson, another Bible story, another revelation. you got to get out of all that and you got to get into God. God's going to give you the revelation. I'd rather have somebody who was a soul winner than somebody who could exegete the whole Bible. Give me the first chair. I'm looking for the first chair in the first generation. Stand and clap your hands unto the Lord and just out of your mouth pray that God would help you. Come on, shout now! Shout and Pray God would help you. Tell me what time it is. I, that for eight. I went really long. I, I, I went. I went thirty-five minutes past what I wanted to. I didn't. I didn't know. But I. I just want to tell you. Guard your lives and guard your homes and guard your minds and your spirits and put up boundaries and seek God. And if if you've got a revelation, praise God. If you're a new convert, if you're new to the church and the Lord shows you something, that's good. Sometimes you've got to keep it to yourself and ponder it in your heart. If God gives you dreams and visions, you don't have to share all of it. That was the downfall. The difference between Joseph and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is that when the Lord spoke to her, she kept all of it in her heart and pondered it. And the difference between her and Joseph is he blabbed his big mouth and made everybody jealous. If God gives you something, you can just keep it to yourself instead of telling everybody what you know. Because he may not accept it and you may not know what It means. But just know the Lord wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to this house. He wants to make us a powerful group of, of believers. And so you got to have conviction. you got to have prayer. you got to do the things that the first chair did. Just lift up your hand right now and pray that God would help you get in that first chair. If if you're like me then pray the prayer if you if you don't mean it don't say it lord whatever it takes i've i've got to have a personal rela- revelation from you i've got to have a personal walk I... Lord, I, I cannot, I can't live on the stories of my parents. I can't live on the stories of my pastor. I certainly can't live on the stories of my pastor's mom and dad. I, I can't live on the sacrifices of the people that came before me. I can't, I can't live on the things that the people have done to even bring me to this house, Lord. I'm ready to make the sacrifice. I'm ready to, I'm ready to burn all the things behind me and get right with you. I'm, I'm ready to do whatever it takes, Lord. Just teach me. Tell me, Lord. Somebody needs to pray this prayer. Lord, let some new convictions come up in me. And let me close my mouth, Lord, and be humble before you and humble before everybody else. And honor everyone else. I feel like praying in the Holy Ghost. If you can, then just pray with me in the Holy Ghost. You <laughs> show I know it's been long. If you need to go, God bless you. It's okay. I want to wave goodbye to all the people at home. I love you. Have a prayer meeting in your home right now. Stop everything you do and have a prayer meeting. Put down your coffee and your pen your Bible and start to pray that God would give you strong convictions that you would believe the gospel and you would do everything that the Lord has instructed you. Just right now, everybody in this house, yes, I need you. I need you.